Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's the Tom Hartman podcast brought to you by Cameron Hughes Wine. There's a little secret that most people don't know about the highest quality wineries in the United States and how they work. They'll say, you know, as they start their year, okay, we're going to bottle, say, 5,000 bottles of wine this year. And so they overproduce for that, produce enough for maybe 6,000 bottles of wine. But, you know, they've, they've sold 5,000, they're ready to get 5,000 out. And so that's basically all they do under their own label. And then when they're done, they've got casks of wine left over that haven't been bottled. Cameron Hughes contracts with some of the very best vineyards in America to take that essentially surplus wine. I mean, you know, it's the exact same wine you would buy in a bottle for 50, 60, 100. Uh, one of the Cameron Hughes wines I had last week, the retail price, if you knew who the brand was, was over $150 a bottle. Cameron Hughes buys that in bulk, bottles it, puts just a simple number. Here it is, lot 506 or lot 622. Simple number on it, and you get some of the most spectacular wines at huge discounts off what you would normally pay. Cameron Hughes has been doing this since 2001, seeking out high-end wine from around the world and selling it online direct to his customers. This is not just American wines. Earning Cameron Hughes Wine the number one wine brand online. It's just extraordinary stuff. Uh, I recently sampled Lot 609. This is a Cabernet Sauvignon. It was insane. It was so good. It was bold. It was rich. It had the, the black fruit and red licorice and crushed red rock. All these, these extraordinary tastes, juicy and ripe on the palate. You got to check this out. Go to chwine.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. C-H as in Cameron Hughes. That's his name. He, the guy who started the company and runs it. I've talked with him. He's a great guy and he's doing amazing stuff. chwine.com slash T-H-O-M. Or text the word wine, W-I-N-E. Text the word wine to 511-511 and you'll get free shipping with your minimum three bottle order. So text wine to 511-511. Cameron Hughes wine. Exceptional value. Extraordinary wine. Now enjoy the podcast. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Tom Hartman here with you. Michael D'Antonio has a new book out. He's a contributor at CNN. He's the author of uh, a new book titled The Shadow President, The Truth About Mike Pence. Previously, he'd written a book called The Truth About Trump. His website, by the way, michaeldantonio.net, and you can tweet him at mbdantonio. Michael, welcome to the program. 
Thank you. Good to be with you. I loved your book. We do book reports during the breaks for our non-commercial affiliates where I read three or four minutes from a book. And I did your book. I just think it's extraordinary. Just to start out, what is the truth about Mike Pence that we need to know? What To rank them, what do you think are the most important truths? Well, I think the most important thing for people to know right now is that Pence has spent his entire adult life positioning himself for the presidency. This spot he's in, one step away from the Oval Office, was actually something he imagined as his destiny. And in college, he told friends that he believed that God wanted him to be president of the United States. So this is a long-term goal that he has. He's serving now really as president in waiting. And when people wonder, well, how can he stand silently by when President Trump says many things that he's previously condemned. And I I actually think there are a lot of Trump policies that are not in Mike Pence's heart. It's because he has a long-term plan, and the long-term plan is to replace Trump as soon as possible. Do you think that Mike Pence is working in the background to help Trump get impeached? Oh, boy. You know, that is the $64,000 question. I think that many of the leaks that people report these days are coming from either the vice president personally or his staff and allies around the country. He's out and about campaigning far more than the president is. Every week he goes to visit one or more sites and give a stump speech. And his network of political activists, which he's been building through a PAC, is much more developed and much stronger than the president's own network. And Hmm. I don't know that he's necessarily actively undermining him, but when we talk to Pence's folks, they all say Mike will be ready. And what they mean is he'll be ready the day that Donald Trump either leaves office under his own steam or is forced out. Yeah. Interesting. The whole Mike Pence persona, you know, Mike Pence started out as a talk show host, and I debated him some years ago in Washington, D.C. at the Heritage Foundation, as I recall. And it was a remarkable experience. The guy is He was really well prepared. He's very slick. He knows his talking points. And whether it's true or not, he goes for it. And, you know, winning is everything, it seems. To what extent is his kind of fawning Christianity actually Mike Pence versus the role he's playing to get himself where he thinks he's destined to be? Well, your observation about Mike as a debater And you're one of the few people I've encountered who knew that he was a radio talk show host. And he actually did TV, too, back in the day in Indiana. Uh, He's very skilled. He put together this identity, and it was the religion first, and then a libertarian economic orientation. He's very much a creature of the Koch brothers and the DeVos family. And then the last thing is the bread-and-butter Republican issues like gun rights. And, you know, he previously was against deficit spending and wanted a balanced budget. You know, Trump has proven that that doesn't really matter anymore in the Republican Party. So I think the religion is part of a package. We're not really free to say, well, he believes this sincerely or he doesn't believe it. 
but he identified when he was young that being part of the Christian right was going to help him in Indiana, which is a very red state and very evangelical, and he's made it part of his base, and that's what he brought with him. You know, when Trump picked him to be his running mate, he brought along that huge group of Christian right voters. If you go back to the letter exchanges between Thomas Jefferson and James Madison in the winter of 1787, after Madison sent Jefferson the first draft of the Constitution, which explicitly says that there will not be an official religion for the United States, Jefferson was very concerned that priests might end up being politicians, that people who were religiously inclined would seek and seize political power. And he openly mused about, might there be a way to avoid this or prevent this beyond simply informing people of the danger of it? Madison thought he was being paranoid. And Madison, of course, was a Christian. Jefferson was not. And Madison's response was, the real danger is the corruption of Christianity by government. And in fact, Madison's first veto of his presidency it was vetoing a bill that would have turned the poorhouses in Washington, D.C., which were funded from the George Washington administration, created by the federal government, funded by the federal government, that would have turned those poorhouses over to the churches to administer with federal funds. And Madison vetoed that, saying that this would set a precedent that would be destructive to the United States. He was concerned that the church was going to get corrupted by having access to political power or financial resources from the federal government. It looks to me, in retrospect, like both of them were right, and that Mike Pence is the poster boy for this. Your thoughts? Well, you really have put your finger on a key issue. Both of them were right, and I think the Constitution, especially the separation of church and state, was devised to avoid both outcomes. You know, those who loved the church and valued its role, especially in private life, didn't want the government to have anything to do with it, and that actually was a very Baptist point of view, and it's why the Southern Baptist Convention until the 1970s was adamant about separation of church and state. And at the same time, people were worried that priests, as you described them, would get involved in government. And this is why JFK was asked over and over again about who would have the greater influence on him, you know, the Pope or the American people, and he had to ultimately sign a statement saying that he is for the American people and will take no orders from the Vatican. Right. Flash forward, now we have in Pence a guy who thought he would be a priest when he was a young man, is very devoted to making Christianity the dominant stream in American social life, and actually has given speeches where he speaks wistfully of the days prior to the Declaration of Independence, when some colonies actually had state churches. He he thinks that was a good idea. Massachusetts in particular. I mean, that, right, that's why right. Ben Franklin fled to Pennsylvania when he was a young man. He was so horrified by it. So what do we do with this knowledge, Michael? Well, I think we do what everyone's doing around the president. We stay focused. We announce what's going on. I think Every day, Trump gives us something to describe and identify and make sure that we understand so that it goes into our calculus when it comes to voting. And I think with Mike Pence, the same is true. He has a right to all of his 
faith beliefs, and certainly I don't denigrate his style of religion. It's, it's his to embrace. But we should know about it. We should know that he wants to roll back equality for gay Americans. He wants to roll back Roe v. Wade. He doesn't believe that there is such a thing as evolution, and he thinks that climate science is all false. So as long as we know this, it informs us when we do our civic duty. I think that's all the obligation we have. Seems like a great start. The book is The Shadow President, The Truth About Mike Pence by Michael D'Antonio with Peter Eisner. And the website, michaeldantonio.net, and you can tweet him at mbdantonio. Michael, thank you so much for dropping by today. Thanks, Tom. Great talking with you. Great book. A great book and a, and a great contribution. I'm looking forward to tracking down a copy of your book on Trump, too. Thank you so much. I've been using the Muse EEG neurofeedback headband. I'm not sure that's exactly what they call it, but the website is choosemuse.com. It's a little headband you put on, um, just sets over your ears, sort of like a pair of glasses, only it goes across the forehead. And it actually reads your brain waves, your EEG, and feeds it back to you through a free app on your, on your smartphone into your earphones, into your, into your ears, as the sounds of weather. And as your brain gets more agitated, the weather gets louder. And as your brain gets calmer and more peaceful and more meditative, the weather gets softer and the waves get softer. And you start hearing little birds when you're having really cool brainwave activity that's associated with the way that good meditators do it. It's a meditation instruction tool. And meditation is such an incredible thing. It, it you know, helps concentration, focus, lowers blood pressure. I've been using this for about four or five months now. And I have noticed in my daily writing, because I've, I've got a 10-book contract right now, and I'm writing so much every single day. I used to, I used to sit down to write and say, okay, I'm going to write for an hour. And half of that hour was spent with distractions. I'd think of this and think of that. And, oh, I need to check my email. Oh, I got to do that. And, and I would constantly distract myself and then eventually come back to it. Since I've started using the Muse, now when these distractions pop up, just like they do in my meditation, I've learned how to, just like in my meditation, say, oh, that's a distraction. I'll let go of that. I'll come back to that later. I'm going to get back to writing. And now, instead of getting 30 minutes worth of work done in an hour of sitting and writing, I'm getting 50 or 60 minutes of work done in an hour of sitting and writing. It's really extraordinary. The, you can learn all about it at choosemuse, M-U-S-E, choosemuse.com. And if you order Using the code TOM, T-H-O-M, you get $30 off. So check it out. It's great. Choosemuse.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Today we're reading The Shadow President, The Truth About Mike Pence by Michael D'Antonio. This is from the first chapter. For decades, Pence had presented himself as a humble servant who could be entrusted with power because he was at heart a mild-mannered Midwesterner. Friends and foes alike said his major character trait was extreme niceness. When given the opportunity, Pence described himself as a true Hoosier, son of Indiana, who was a Christian, a conservative, and a Republican in that order. This is how he had introduced himself to the country at the Republican National Convention six months earlier. The list contrasted with the usual pledge politicians make to put country first. That is, this is, not, this is what President Obama did after the 2016 election when he said, we are not Democrats first, we are not Republicans first, we are Americans first. The vice president's self-declared identity revealed both his priorities and the source of his power. 
For 30 years, he had helped lead the Republican Party into a closer alliance with preachers who were turning evangelical Christianity from a religion into a political crusade that engaged in a culture war with non-believers. The aim of many was to destroy abortion rights, roll back the equality gained by gay citizens, and prepare the nation for the second coming of Christ. Pence and others used martial metaphors and considered themselves warriors of the Christian right, both besieged and called upon to fight. Quote, those who would have us ignore the battle being fought over life, marriage, and religious liberty have forgotten the lessons of history, said Pence in 2010. America's darkest moments have come when economic arguments trumped moral principles. Pence's allies in his war included hugely wealthy donors who, despite their vast wealth accumulated at a time of historic inequality, also posed as victims. As libertarians in the mold of Ayn Rand's cardboard characters, they felt inhibited in the pursuit of even greater riches by a government that imposed foolish regulations and would redistribute their wealth to the supposedly indolent poor. Starting with this perspective, they denied the science behind environmental protection, demanded tax cuts for themselves, and insisted on massive reductions in programs serving anyone who wasn't rich. The victimhood claimed by both the libertarians and the Christian right permitted the construction of an alternative reality that denied their own power and masked their ambition to make politics and culture conform to an ideology that included white Christian supremacy and predatory capitalism. It also denied the progress they had made in their construction of their own political might. With his oath of office, Vice President Pence became both the free marketer's hero and the most successful Christian supremacist in American history. Most of Pence's life had been preparation for this moment, and possibly one more. His lifelong goal, set when he was a boy, was the Oval Office itself. Remarkably, he had reached this point by tying his fate to Donald J. Trump, a man whose immorality in the form of lying, cheating, and deceiving in every aspect of his life, from his marriage to his businesses, had made him a living exemplar of everything that Christianity and conservatism abhorred. However, this record also suggested that Pence was more likely to assume the highest office in the land than most vice presidents who had come before. To put it bluntly, Trump was vulnerable to impeachment. If this occurred, Pence would see the hand of God at work in his elevation to the presidency. In the meantime, he would wait and watch. On inauguration day, with Pence looking on, a slightly stooped Donald Trump stepped forward when it was his turn to face the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, John Roberts. Beside Trump stood his wife, Melania, the former fashion model, who held two Bibles, Lincoln's and Trump's own. At the stroke of noon, the president-elect raised his right hand and placed his left on the Bibles. As he did this, Trump's family members and hundreds of political and government figures strained to see the moment. Trump and Pence were a study in contrast. At age 58, Pence appeared trim, perhaps even athletic, and could have passed for a man 10 years younger. His jacket was neatly buttoned. His hands were clasped at his waist. His smooth face was set in a half-smile. In some, he resembled a small-town pastor, or maybe even a funeral director. Mere feet away, a stern-faced 70-year-old Trump stood with his coat hanging open like a caftan to reveal a long red necktie. Despite much cosmetic intervention, he looked old and tired. At the conclusion of the presidential oath, which had been voiced by 44 presidents before him, Trump said the words, so help me God, and accepted the congratulations of those closest to him with a thin-lipped, toothless grin. He then delivered a 15-minute speech replete with distortions and falsehoods that were his trademark. 
He declared that America was awash with crime and despair and under constant attack. This American carnage stops right here and stops right now, said Trump. It was the most remembered phrase of the address. That was some weird S-word. Former President George W. Bush was heard to remark as he left the inaugural stand. The Shadow President, The Truth About Mike Pence by Michael D'Antonio. So in the New York Times, Jim Rudenberg and Maggie Haberman are talking about, well, the headline says it all. National Enquirer had decades of Trump dirt. He, Trump, wanted to buy it all. They're talking about how, well, we know that there's these two women, you know, Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal, who uh, Trump had sexual relationships with. The one with Karen McDougal apparently lasted almost a year while Donald Trump's wife, Melania, was pregnant with Barron, their youngest child, and in the year immediately following that birth. And Trump was using David Pecker and American Media, or whatever, I think American Media is the name of the company that owns the National Enquirer, to uh, bury some of these stories. But it turns out that, to quote the article, Mr. Trump wanted to go even further. He and his lawyer, Michael Cohen, they write, devised a plan to buy up all the dirt on Trump that the National Enquirer and its parent company collected on him all the way back to the 1980s. And the way that we know about this is that that tape that Michael Cohen released, well, looking back on it now with this understanding, this is one of the things that Michael Cohen was actually talking about on that tape. He said, and I quote, it's all the stuff, all the stuff, because you never know, right? You, you never know which, which one of these stories is going to come out and end up you know, biting you in the butt. It raises this issue of the cozy relationship, this grifter relationship, essentially, between one of the major media companies in the United States. You say, oh, the National Enquirer, it's a, it's a circulation in many cases larger than the major city newspapers. There's dozens of them. They're all owned by one company now. The vast majority of them, anyhow, are owned by David Pecker's company. There's been this incredible consolidation in the supermarket tabloids under one company. And that company has been working, apparently, we know, with Donald Trump for decades to protect this billionaire grifter. And presumably, they've been hiding the crimes of other billionaire grifters. It looks like, you know, perhaps Elliot Broidy, for example, the guy who was the finance chair for the Republican Party and uh, who paid off a, a mistress for having either a baby or an abortion. I don't remember which it was. I think it was an abortion. In fact, I'm quite sure it was an abortion. Paid her something like a million bucks. I, it just this, this whole culture of grifter and how this culture of grifter not only exists at the level of, you know, billionaire Trump and multimillionaire or billionaire Brody and, and, and David Pecker's company and the National Enquirer and whatnot, but right up through our entire economy, up and down throughout our entire economy, we have by and large become a nation that has lost its values. We used to think the economy was here to serve us, right? The whole point of having an economy, of, of having you know, a stable currency and having a court system that enforces the rules of an economy, the whole point of and, and, and allowing the corporations to have special privileges and corporate owners to have certain rights and privileges that normal people don't have. All of that was an exchange. It was part of a social contract in exchange for corporations behaving well, doing good things for people. 
And since the Reagan era, since Reagan changed the rules of the game of capitalism, all that has changed. And we have now just become this grifter country with a grifter media, and I would put Fox so-called news in this, in this category too, owned by another billionaire, Rupert Murdoch. Uh, interesting, there's been a couple of pieces lately about how Murdoch basically polluted the, the media of Australia. He's the single largest newspaper owner in, in Australia to this day. And then he moved down to the UK where he bought a whole bunch of UK newspapers, including the, the, the Times of London, and turned them into party organs and flipped UK politics to the right, as he did Australia's first. And then he flipped UK's politics to the right, and you got the rise of Maggie Thatcher and all this other stuff. And then he came to the United States and became a U.S. citizen and started Fox so-called news and bought the Wall Street Journal and, and the New York Post. And he's, and he's flipped the United States politics hard to the right, all in favor of the billionaires. You know, another grifter here, essentially. And then Trump is taking this grift you know, oh, the media, well, you can't trust the media, right? You can trust the, the National Enquirer, but not the rest of the media. And he has taken this up to elevate it to call the press in the United States. And, and you know, I mean, I've been doing this program for 15 years. I, I have certainly had my long list of complaints about the corporate media in the United States, about my interactions with them and about how they portray progressives and how they basically shill for their own interests and all these kind of things, their own commercial interests. But still, it's the press, right? I mean, you know, right now, Trump is going after CNN because they published this story that Carl Bernstein wrote, where his old writing partner, Carl Bernstein wrote, saying that Cohen, Michael Cohen, uh, Trump's lawyer, you know, another grifter, Michael Cohen, was willing to testify that he knew that Trump knew about the Trump Tower meeting that his son and his son-in-law and whatnot were part of, along with a bunch of Russians. And it turns out that that was from Lanny Davis, and Lanny Davis has now walked that back and said, well, that wasn't true, actually. And so CNN kind of got caught with this, and Trump is like just trashing them every single day. See, you told a lie. And, you know, once, and they didn't know it was a lie, they trusted Lanny Davis, and they still say they've got another source for this, and it may turn out that it actually is true. CNN is so far stuck by their guns, or at least they had. But you go to MediaMatters.org and you can literally every day, every single day, see the lies being told on Fox News being debunked on Media Matters. Literally every day. Trump gets one mistake that CNN has made in maybe a year, and he's turning it into, they are the enemy of the people. See, they're the enemy of the people. And this guy, Robert Chain, listens to this and gets on a plane or drives his car or whatever and heads to Boston to murder Boston Globe reporters. He calls them up, and this is via Tom Winter at NBC News, a transcript of the calls. He calls up the Boston Globe and leaves this message. You're the enemy of the people, and we're gonna kill every effing one of you. Now he's spelling these words out. I'm going to abbreviate them. Hey, why don't you call the F? Why don't you call Mueller? Maybe he can help you out, buddy. Still there, and then he uses the F word that's a slur for gay people. All right, why are you gonna why are you gonna trace by call? What are you going to do, MFR? You ain't gonna do S word. I'm gonna shoot you in the effing head later today at four o'clock. Goodbye. Apparently he said that to the person who answered the phone. You're the enemy of the people. Now where do you hear that? I doubt he's 68 years old. I don't think he's old enough to have heard it from Joseph Stalin, who's the guy who turned it into a mantra in the Soviet Union in the 1950s, 40s and 50s. 
You heard it from Donald Trump. Donald Trump, quote, I just cannot state strongly enough how totally dishonest much of the media is. Truth doesn't matter to them. They only have their hatred and agenda. This includes fake books which come out about me all the time, always anonymous sources and are pure fiction, enemy of the people. This guy threatened the Boston Globe a few days ago. He was arrested. But this is where we go. And now Trump is saying, oh, yeah, and by the way, you know, Clinton's email was hacked by China. It wasn't just the Russians. And the FBI has to come out and say, no, nah, no evidence. President's lying. Well, they didn't say that, but it's fairly obvious. I get the fundraiser from Jeff Merkley. I mean, people are waking up and pushing back and saying, we're enough of the grift and enough of the fundamentally anti-American hatred of the press. Right? Politicians have always been uncomfortable about the press. But calling them the enemy of the people, literally a Stalinist. Jeff Merkley sends a uh, fundraising email. Late last year, I called for Donald Trump's resignation. His record of abuse is abhorrent and reason enough for him to go. At least 17 women have accused him of sexual misconduct. I believe them. Since then, he was implicated in a criminal conspiracy to violate federal campaign law to influence the 2016 election. Several of his top campaign officials have been convicted or pled guilty. And that's not all. He's undermined our opinion in the world by distancing our allies and embracing Putin. And he ordered children to be locked in cages after being separated from their families at the southern border. And no, he certainly has not resigned. He's digging in as deep as he can. And he's being enabled all the way by a compliant Republican-led Congress. This is where we're at. We still have over 500 children that have been separated from their families. These three, four, five-year-olds are being uh, the few that have been reunited. In many cases, literally don't recognize their parents. You probably have seen these viral videos of this mother begging her little three-year-old child to acknowledge her and him going, no, I don't know you, stay away. Because they had been separated for three, four, five months. This is criminal what these people are doing. This is the Tom Hartman Program. I I just so hope America wakes up and votes these people out of office. Greg in Tatum, Washington. Hey, Greg, what's on your mind today? Yeah, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. I've been listening to you for a while, and you're basically the main news I get. I don't trust a lot of the other news. But I've heard recently or a while back about bank bail-ins. Instead of the banks getting bailed out by the government, then the banks, if the banks fail, then they'll go to all their investors, which basically would be my meager sum that's in their bank. Yeah, your checking and savings account. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, I looked it up on the internet, and I don't really find any solid news that I can trust. And you're the only one I can trust with some uh, an accurate explanation of this. I remember after the crash of 2008 where the bank bail-ins were being debated in Congress, uh, Greg. I don't remember. I believe that that was passed. I think that that was written into one of the laws in that time. But I don't have the details. So I can't give you a definitive answer. I'd have to look it up. Yeah. And you know, would that make it where it might be, if I put my money into stocks, I mean, can the company might go down, but my money wouldn't be in their bank. I'm just, I don't have very much. And I just, I'm on social security. I'm living off grid out here in the country. And I can't afford to have the bank all of a sudden take my meager amount that I've saved up 
yeah. it makes my life semi-comfortable. It looks um, like so. this wasn't passed. I'm just Googling this right now, and white bank bail-ins will be the new bailouts, and the government is switching tactics. America's warned bail-ins are coming. Are you prepared for bail-ins? And most of them seem to be from hard right websites, World Net Daily kind of stuff. So I'm guessing that the whole bail-in thing didn't actually pass. Hang on just a second here. This is a piece in the Huffington Post. I can, you can generally trust this. Okay, this was published in December of 2017 by Ellen Brown, and I trust Ellen Brown's reporting. She's really good. She wrote Web of Debt. That's her website, in fact, webofdebt.com. Uh-huh. And she says that, oh, this is the Financial Stability Board changing the rules of international banking. So apparently there's a, an international standard that now allows for bank bail-ins. But whether it applies here to the United States, I can't tell you. Ellen tends to write fairly dense stuff, and I've gone through four pages of this now, just skimming it as we're talking, and I don't see clear, concise answer that bail-ins are actually here. So, you know, I wouldn't freak out about it too much. I mean, we do have federal deposit insurance. Your money up to $250,000 is government insured in every bank, and if you have more than that, you put it in multiple banks. Um, No, I don't, but I've heard that they're defunding that, and, you know, it's like... You know, they they have been they have cut back the funding for it, but it's still there. It's still there. I would not be so concerned about that, Greg. There's, I think, far more important things to be worried about. Greg, thanks a lot for the call. Uh, it's good to hear from you. Jared in Downington, Pennsylvania. Hey, Jared, thanks for listening on our app. What's up? Uh, hello, Tom. I want to talk about my childhood and growing up with George W. Bush as president. Okay. Because when I grew up, there was one thing that I noticed when I would watch, you know, the cartoons. And even back then, I had a political understanding, but it was, you know... Oh, cartoons have been subversive since the 1930s. Oh, yeah, exactly. About, you know, who the president was. And, you know, I sort of had an idea that it was going to be Al Gore back in the late 90s. And, you know, watch things like Futurama or The Simpsons like that. And it was just such a shock when it became Bush, when the Supreme Court picked Bush as president. And, you know, I always asked, you know, I was always an energetic young kid. I always wanted to know stuff about politics. I said, how could this happen? How could we allow somebody who isn't president become president? And that really well, here's, here's a lot of reasons. Listen, this is Jimmy Carter on that topic, if I may, very quickly. I don't think that George W. Bush won the election in 2000 against Al Gore because I, th- I think that he probably lost Florida and also that nationwide. There you go. I agree. And I remember the 2000 election. I was very young at the time, but I do remember that. And my father said he was, you know, working at the time at the plant. And, you know, mm-hmm. he was he and his buddies were all celebrating because they said, well, you know, Gore won the election because he won Florida. Florida's blue. I'm going home and everything's uh, all hunky dory. And then, you know, yeah. And then Carl Rove right. came out. Yeah, Carl Rove. And I just wonder what kind of psychological impact Trump has on these young kids growing up, because I you know, I resented Bush. I thought he was a usurper. Even, you know, in high school, I said, why is this man even president? And the first thing I thought of when Trump was selected, he wasn't elected, he was selected by the Electoral College, 
much like Bush in 2000. Right. It was selected by the Supreme Court. And the Electoral uh, College. Al Gore got a half million more votes than George W. Bush did. Yeah, exactly. How are young people going to grow up thinking we have a guy who lost by three million votes, but he's sitting in the White House? Right. Are they going to resent it as much as me? Because I, I, think I so. feel like there's a lot of young people who there's going to be a huge backlash to all this. All these yeah. old people that support Trump, the young generation, they're going to hate him, much like our generation hated Bush. Yeah. Because we were you know, paying attention. We knew about Iraq. I think you're right, Jared. The question is, will they get politically active? Will they show up in the polls? Because you had voter participation rates among millennials who were eligible to vote in the last election at around 13 to 17 percent. I mean, it was really, really low. And we've got to get that up. Jared, thanks for the call. It's the True People's Media, the Tom Hartman program. John in San Francisco. Hey, John, what's on your mind? Thanks for listening to AM 910 in San Francisco, our newest Clear Channel affiliate. What's up? And thanks for taking my call, Tom. Yeah, I have a scenario for you and the listeners out there. When a list of government officials and intelligence officers and military folks grew from 12, 30, 50, 60, and now I heard it's at 70, including John Brennan. Oh, it's over 100. It's over, okay. (laughs) What I would suggest is that, and with Brennan being part of this rendition thing and Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld setting that whole thing up in 54 countries across the planet, participating in, we just forego, and as far as they're concerned, it's legal, let's rendition Trump to one of the 54 countries or more, and... We can uh, send, I suggest North Africa, because most of North Africa participated. And uh, the less air conditioning and the darker your guards, the better. And um, Yeah, that's, that's a pretty grim sentiment, John. Are, is there any legal basis for what you're suggesting, or is this, I just don't like him and I want to get rid of him? Well, we can get John Yee from Berkeley across the bay here uh, to uh, yeah. write a legal argument. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, you know, I get it, John. It's, it's tongue in cheek, but uh, I think that the sentiment about not necessarily let's steal from strength. You know, I mean, this guy's in, this guy's really nuts and I'm just suggesting he ought to get a taste of his own medicine. And that would be the best system I could think. I think the way to do this, John, you know, I get, I get what you're saying. The way to do this is for when the Democrats take control of the house of representatives, begin having congressional hearings with the power of the subpoena, enforcing that power, not wimping out like when, Carl Rove refused to go before Congress and testify and instead went over to uh, Georgia, I think it was, to meet with Saakashvili. But instead, just actually start enforcing these subpoenas and let the American people know what happened. I mean, this is, you know, they did these show trials in two years of Benghazi. Not a single indictment, not a single crime ever even specifically alleged. Six years of Clinton's emails, not a single indictment. Now you've got, you know, the, the crimes of Trump. We've got, what, 30 plus indictments now? And, you know, a half a dozen people have already pled guilty. That's just the stuff that the prosecutors have nailed down. So I think, you know, taking this to the next step and having Congress look into this and actually do it in public, because we have no idea what Mueller is doing, right? We don't know until the indictments come out. And then we're like, whoa, Paul Manafort did that? Are you kidding? And there's a lot more of that, whoa, to come. But I think that when Congress does it, it gets real interesting. And this is why Trump and the Republicans are so freaked out right now. On the line with us is Professor Thomas DeLorenzo. He is a professor of economics at Loyola University at the Maryland Salinger School of Business, a senior scholar with the Ludwig von Mises Institute and author of 
six books, including his latest, The Problem with Socialism. And uh, you can uh, tweet him, I guess, generically at, at Mises, M-I-S-E-S. Uh, Professor, welcome to the program. Uh, thank you for having me. So I've looked through your book, and I'm a little baffled. You're t- talking about modern Democratic Party progressive policies as socialist. And yes, there are some people who call them that. But those policies are basically in favor of Social Security, Medicare, public roads, public fire departments, public schools. What's your problem with those things? Generally, the, uh, the worst performing parts of our uh, economy are the ones run by government. Yeah, our, our country's about... Our public roads, our public schools? Socialism. You want to privatize those? Uh, uh, Our fire well, departments? Sure. You know, you know, well, where, where is the worst education in America? It's the inner city public schools, the government-run monopoly. But you that's know, a function public... of schools being funded by property taxes, which goes back to Reconstruction. This was an effort to keep poor black schools poor so that they would not produce good students to prevent well, economic well, opportunity. Well, public schools uh, in high-income districts are doing just great. They're kicking ass. Wouldn't it be a much more reasonable policy to simply equalize funding of schools all across the country? Well, there's no link between how much money is spent and educational achievement. And I think anybody with their eyes open... Seriously? A lot of the inner-city government schools in cities like Baltimore, where I work, are just awful. And the Ku Klux Klan could not have done more harm to black children in America than the government-run school monopoly in the inner-city public schools in places like Baltimore and Chicago. So your solution is to turn these over to Trump University? You're one of Betsy DeVos's for-profit schools? No, that's a stupid comment. Of course not. Of course not. Well, what is your uh, solution? Uh, <laughs> solution. I, a magic bullet. There is no magic bullet. But, of course, competition is preferred to monopoly. And, of course, the government-run schools are a monopoly. And monopolies are always bad for most everybody except for the monopolists. In uh, commerce, I agree with you. But this is we're talking the education of our children. We're not talking yeah, commerce no, here. It's even, worse. it's even worse that because when they fail, you can ruin a child's life and his economic opportunity forever. And which is what we're doing. In, in so what's your government, solution? Government schools. And so we need more competition, including private schools. And so, uh, you know, the private schools, that's why so many parents are resorting to homeschooling, uh, because they don't want to have their kids sitting there in, uh, in these gun-free zones where all the mass shootings occur. In those schools and with those people, right? What's that? In those public schools with those people. Well, no, I didn't say that. That's you. That's another dumb comment. Well, Virginia, I mean, you know, after Brown versus Board of Education for a full year, Virginia shut down the entire state's public schools because they didn't want white kids to have to go to school with black well, kids. What does that have to do with anything I'm talking about in my book? It seems like we're on the edge of the same thing. When you introduce, quote, competition, when you introduce alternatives, what happens is that the wealthy white kids end up in the fancy, more expensive schools, and the poor black kids end up, by and large, poor white kids, if we're talking West Virginia, end up in inferior schools, you know, whether they're run by government or whether they're run by charter schools. I mean, there's you find just about the same percentage of underperforming charter schools as you do public schools in the country. Yeah, I didn't know you were an educational scholar, but I think... Well, I ran a private school for 14 years. I was on the board for 30 years. So you think more educational opportunity is a bad thing for black kids? That's what you just... What I'm saying is that we need to stop funding public schools through property taxes so that nice communities, upscale white suburban neighborhoods where you've got high property values and those high property taxes that support education have great schools and poorer schools have crappy schools. We need to stop that. That was put into place for a very specific reason and not view the public good 
as an opportunity for profit. That's what I'm saying. You can call yeah, that socialism well, if you want. You can yeah, say it's well, terrible, you know, but... Well, you, you have to confront the fact that there are places like Washington, D.C., where they spend maybe 30000 a year per student or more in the government schools, and the inner-city schools in D.C. are very poor, just like the ones in Baltimore, Chicago, and many Because they're places. dealing with children who are damaged by the poverty of their parents, and the poverty of their parents is a function of structural racism. I mean, if you want to solve the school yeah, problem yeah. in Washington, D.C., solve the poverty problem. But again, turning that over to a for-profit corporation, I don't see well, how that happens. Well, of course, that's, that's another big failure of government, uh, isn't it? The, the poverty property programs. We've been spending trillions for, what, 70, 80, 90 years on that, and, uh, and we still have a poverty problem. LBJ cut poverty in half in the United States in eight years. <laughs> you, you what? LBJ cut poverty in half in the United States in eight years. If you look at, I was in Canada over the weekend for the wedding of my daughter, and I was in the capital of British Columbia, Victoria. I didn't see a single street person. I didn't see poor people. And we traveled all over the place. I'm sure that there are some, some poor people, but it's a country that has what? The government sector is over 30% in Canada. It's approaching 50% in Northern Europe. And in those countries, you don't have the kind of poverty that we have in the United States. You know, pregnant women in the United States have a higher risk of dying from their pregnancy than in any other developed country in the world. It's right up there with undeveloped countries in Southern Asia and in Africa and in war-torn parts of Central America. That's terrible. Uh, yeah, if that's true, I'm not sure about these statistics you're throwing out like that. But uh, yeah, it's a, it's a good example of the failures of our welfare state, isn't it? And I don't believe for a minute that LBJ cut poverty in half in a few years. That, it was uh, eight years. Quite miraculous. I mean, you, you should read Charles Murray's old book, Losing Ground, and you show that what, what he calls latent poverty. That is, people You're talking Charles poverty. Murray of the bell curve? People without government assistance actually got, became worse off. Poverty rate went up after we started. You're talking Charles Murray, who working. said that black people were intellectually inferior to white people? Mm -hmm. Well, no, I've actually read that book years ago, and he didn't say that. And so, uh, so your you know, ad hominem comments is not a way to address that. I think Murray and the bell curve have been well discredited, but I still don't hear your, your solution curve, to... So, a, let's say, let's, let's move to Social Security and Medicare. You oppose, you, oppose government, you oppose government socialism. I would grant you that Social Security and Medicare are socialist programs. And they run on less than 3% overhead, both of them. If you turn Social Security over to the banks, it's not going to run on 3% overhead. And if you turn Medicare over to the health insurance companies, you know, they're typically running anywhere from 20 to 35% overhead. How is that more efficient? Well, uh, ask your listeners where they would rather have their money. Would they rather be able to invest it on their own somewhere in the stock market or elsewhere? Or would they prefer the 0% return they're going to get if they're under the age of 35 or 40 uh, with Social Security? And that's the bottom line. What is the welfare of Americans who are forced to participate in this program? So if I'm 25 years old and I've been working since I was 16, and so for nine years I've been paying into either A, Social Security, or B, into a 401k, and I've got $30,000 in my 401k now, and I'm 25, and I get in a car accident and break my neck, if I'm on Social Security, I have literally an insurance policy against disaster for the rest of my life. Social Security disability income will pay me until the day I die and protect me, provide me with housing, provide me with medical care, and provide me with food. If I've got 25 grand in my 401k, I can live for what, maybe a year or two and then I starve to death? This is your solution, really? Well, you know, the average person is not going to get an automobile accident and be disabled for the rest of his life. In general, you know, we have all kinds of programs to take care of our fellow citizens like that. 
But in what general, programs? Uh, we're, we're forced we're forced to uh, participate in a program that pays us basically less than a one percent on our investment in a time when countries around the world are moving in the other direction. In England, in the late 70s, their system went bankrupted, and they allowed people of a certain age to opt out. Chile did the same thing when their system was bankrupted in the 80s. When Pinochet did that in Chile, first of all, it took a military coup. And yeah, guys from the Mises Institute and the Chicago School of Economics went down and advised him. And, and the people were so offended when he privatized Social Security that he took thousands of people out and threw them out of helicopters to kill them. Is that what you're recommending? Yeah, that's what I'm recommending. That's, uh, I'm, you know, and, and Margaret Thatcher, I mean, seriously? That's ridiculous. Come on. Well, that was the blowback. I mean, he privatized Social Security. People were out in the streets, and he started killing protesters. Hello? Oh, he just hung up on me. Amazing. Okay, well, <laughs> that was Professor Thomas DeLorenzo, professor of economics at Loyola University and Maryland Selinger School of Business and the senior scholar at the Ludwig von Mises Institute. And apparently, uh, you know, not able to handle a debate. You know, in the world of work, one of the most important things is one of the things that people probably think the least about until they have to sit in it, which is their chair. And the X chair is absolutely extraordinary. This is the new high tech. In fact, they've got a brand new version. It's called the X3, the newest version of the X chair. It is comfortable. It is high tech. And yes, I'll say it. It is sexy. This chair is extraordinary and it will dramatically, consequentially improve your concentration and productivity because it's going to help your posture. And, you know, if you're not in pain and, you're, and your blood is working, you know, flowing well, your brain is going to work well. The new X3 is quite simply the most modern, ergonomic, high-tech, comfortable office chair in the world, period. The X3's unique ATR fabric makes it feel like you're literally floating on air. And its patented split-back lumbar technology provides a cradling, customized feel that has to be experienced to believe. You need to see and feel the X3 for yourself. Go to xchairtom.com. That's xchairtom.com now to check out the X3's perfect blend of design and ergonomics. There's a lot of people, you know, checking these out and going for these chairs. Supplies are limited, so don't wait. Order at xchairtom.com. And if you do it now, you get $100 off. That's xchairtom.com. Or you can call them at 1-844-4-X-CHAIR. This chair comes with a 30-day, no-questions-asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. That's how good it is. Go to xchairtom.com right now. Use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, to get a free footrest. xchairtom.com. Now back to the podcast. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Ah, yes. Let's bring back the helicopters. There were actually people wearing T-shirts here in Portland, the right-wingers, the Nazis at the last protest, saying, time to do what Pinochet did and start throwing lefties out of helicopters. Let's bring in our old buddy Tom Perez, the chair of the Democratic National Committee, the DNC, the former U.S. Secretary of Labor, Democrats.org, of course, their website. You can tweet him at Tom Perez. And uh, Secretary Perez, welcome back to the program. 
Tom. It's great to be back with you and all of your listeners. Thank you. Uh, a couple of things that I wanted to, to touch base with you on. Uh, I, I certainly want to get into the whole superdelegate thing. I think that's a big deal. And I wanted to talk to you also about the uh, uh, this whip the vote campaign. But before we get to that real quickly, I'm, I'm wondering, what's the deal with the DNC saying that they'll take fossil fuel money again? Well, we didn't take any fossil fuel money, Tom. Uh, I've been on the DNC for 18 months. We haven't. Uh, we've had controls in place, and that has been the result. There was a resolution offered, notwithstanding the fact that we've taken no money, that really didn't consult with folks in the labor movement. Climate change is real. We've got to address it, and we've addressed it in a number of ways here at the DNC. And what I was concerned about with uh, a resolution that addressed a problem that wasn't really a problem, as I just explained, was that if we're going to address climate change, we've got to make sure we have everyone at the table. And I've been working very closely with people like Gina McCarthy, people uh, in the labor movement, the environmental movement. As we move to a clean energy economy, we've got to make sure we move together. And the the earlier resolution, uh, you know, frankly, uh, excluded a lot of workers from that conversation. And so what we're trying to do now and what we are doing is we're convening all the stakeholders, uh, very similar to a Blue-Green Alliance that has been uh, an area where I've uh, addressed that group, bringing labor and, and environmentalists uh, together as we move to um, an economy that is truly uh, you know, a clean economy, but an economy that works for everybody. So am I understanding that what you're saying is that the DNC wanted to be able to include contributions from uh, workers and unions that are in the extractive industries or the fossil fuel industry who had been locked out? Is that, is that, is that what yeah, I'm I mean, there, Again, we, we took Again, we've taken no money, Tom. This was really frustrating, to be quite honest with you. Yeah, it is to me, too, because I'm getting all kinds of calls about this, and the media is, like, blowing this whole thing up. I'm well, sorry. And, and it's, it's frustrating. We, we, it was a resolution that addressed a problem that was non-existent. Right. And it did so in a way that excluded workers and, uh, and frankly, made many of our colleagues in the labor movement feel like uh, they had been demonized. And, uh, and that's not right. And so... We move forward, and we are continuing to move forward. We're, we're convening a meeting uh, in a few weeks with, again, folks from the labor movement, folks from the environmental movement. These are folks that I've worked with over the course of, of my career, working on environmental justice issues, working on labor justice issues. I think we're at our best when we uh, build a big table and when we solve our challenges together. And that's exactly what we're doing. That's what we did in our, our reform issues that resulted in last week's meeting at the DNC. Uh, yeah, let's talk about that. Where, yeah, we, I mean, we, that was all about growing the party, Tom, all about uniting the party, all about restoring people's trust in the party. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, we uh, passed some very, very important reforms that are designed to make our primaries and our caucuses more accessible. And frankly, there's going to be less caucuses and more primaries in 2020 as a result of the work that we are doing. The caucuses that do exist are going to be more inclusive, so that if you, you know, work in shift work, you, you don't have to uh, win the boss lottery or, or else take unpaid leave to exercise your right to vote. If, if you're a veteran deployed overseas, you, you, you ought to be able to vote absentee in a caucus, things of that nature. And then um, the reform that has probably gen, uh, generated the most attention um, 
is the reforms around um, so-called superdelegates. Superdelegates have never decided the selection of the nominee, but there are many people who who firmly believe that they have affected their sense of whether the process has been fair. And this issue isn't new. It's been around for years. And uh, what we did was pass uh, reforms that say that superdelegates will not vote on the first ballot unless the outcome has already been decided. Uh, I think this is going to go a long way toward really um, restoring people's trust in the party, earning people's trust in the party, sending a clear signal that we want our grassroots uh, to decide who the nominee will be in 2020. And you know, we're going to have a, you know, perhaps a double-digit field of candidates for president. All but one are going to be disappointed because they're not going to make it to the mountaintop. My goal is to make sure at the end of the process, Tom, that everybody feels like their candidate got a fair shake uh, and the process was fair. And I think these reforms are going to go a long way toward ensuring that and strengthening people's confidence in our party. That is great. There is uh, an effort to uh, encourage Democratic senators to go on the record saying that they will oppose the Kavanaugh nomination of the Supreme Court. Is it, does the does the party does the DNC get involved in that sort of thing? The, this whip the vote effort, or is that is that uh, more for the elected politicians to be doing? I mean, you know, where, is there a position that you guys hold on that? Well, I mean, we've taken uh, we've we spent a lot of time on the Kavanaugh nomination and. Uh, you know, if, if I were uh, a U.S. senator, I would uh, certainly vote against his nomination. It's very clear to me that our health care uh, is um, at risk if he becomes the ninth justice of the Supreme Court. It's clear to me that women's reproductive rights are at risk. It's clear to me that whenever the distinction was, uh, whenever the question was, do I support a large corporation or do I support ordinary workers, he always signed with, he always sided with uh, large corporations, and that's that's not what we need in a uh, in the ninth justice. And so uh, that's what I would do if I were in the Senate. It's going to obviously be up to every senator uh, to make their decision. This, what what bothers me as much as anything, Tom, is that uh, we we can't and shouldn't have a vote until we've gotten all the information. Uh, the, when I was nominated for labor secretary. Uh, they wouldn't hold a hearing until I provided all this information, and that was not for a lifetime appointment. Right. Uh, and and by the way, we provided all the information, and everyone had a chance to review it because that's how the process works. But the Republicans so, are hiding information about Brett Kavanaugh's time in the White House. Exactly, this is very relevant stuff, and it it goes to the heart of the matter of whether he's going to be fair and, and, and uh, impartial. I, right. We heard from John Roberts, he was just going to be an umpire. Well, that turned out to be uh, a very uh, not-so-accurate statement. And, and we need to know uh, more about this candidate, which is why I think it's so important that we get access to full information. They, they, they uh, in 2016, said you, you shouldn't put a nomination forward when you're in the throes of an election cycle. We're, we're in the throes of an election cycle with a president who was under a cloud of controversy because of the culture of corruption and the notion that he could get a second bite at the apple with a second justice of the Supreme Court. Um, we're going to keep fighting like heck to make sure that doesn't happen. Yeah, good on you. Um, anything else going on with the DNC that you want to let us know about? Uh, we're talking to Tom Perez. Days, 
70 days, uh, Tom, until the most important election of our lifetime. And we've been organizing everywhere, working in partnership with uh, state parties, with uh, the labor movement, with the Indivisible chapters, other emerging organizations, legacy organizations. Uh, I come to you with great optimism because uh, I've never seen this kind of energy out there. If there's a silver lining to this president, it's that people have awakened to the fact that democracy can never be a spectator sport. And I have a lot of faith and confidence that we can get out there, not only take the House, but I recognize the Senate is more of an uphill climb. But, uh, you know, people said, you're not going to win Alabama, and look what happened. So we're fighting like heck, and we're not only fighting on the federal races, we're fighting to help take over state houses. I I was in Wisconsin with Tony Evers, who's going to be the next governor. He's going to take down Scott Walker. was with him on on Sunday on the Wisconsin campus organizing students. Uh, When people get out there and vote and organize their neighbors to vote, that's how we win. And so 70 days till the weekend, that's our motto at the DNC, and we're going to work every single day to help elect Democrats up and down the ticket. If people have any questions about how to get involved, IWillVote.com is how they can get to us. IWillVote.com. Okay, IWillVote.com. Uh, last question. I uh, There was an article in Politico last week that uh, suggested that the voter suppression, specifically the voter purges, um, have been so aggressive in Florida that there are actually fewer people, fewer registered voters in Florida today than there were two years ago. And um, in a number of other states, we're seeing similar trends um, ever since the Supreme Court legalized the caging that the uh, Republican Party had been under a, a court order to prevent since the uh, since the 60s or the 80s. And and, uh, you know, where they send out the postcard and if you don't send it back, then they knock you off the voting rolls. Uh, Ohio had been doing that. They wanted the Supreme Court. Now, other Republican controlled states are aggressively doing it. Um, is the DNC, uh, you know, on this? Absolutely. Uh, we've been building for some time a voter protection infrastructure. I'm very familiar with the, um, the National Voter Registration Act, the NVRA, the so-called motor voter law. Section 8 pertains to the unlawful purchase that you're talking about. And let me give you an example. You know, in Ohio, which was uh, an epicenter of voter purging, Tom, the uh, Supreme Court gave a green light to the types of unlawful purging that they were doing. However, because we are close enough to the election, uh, the voters cannot be purged because Section 8 prohibits purging activity uh, in the run-up to an election. Hmm. And, and what that means is that the Secretary of State race in Ohio, just to give listeners uh, a sense, if the Republican wins that race, uh, there are quite literally uh, roughly a million voters who are in danger of getting purged from Ohio. It's the Democrat, a woman named Kathleen Clyde, wins that race, and we've endorsed her, we've been working with her, uh, she's going to win, then we save those voters. Uh, wow. Voter suppression is a permanent staple in the Republican playbook. We need to understand that and build the infrastructure to prevent it and elect Democrats so that in this redistricting cycle, uh, we can actually draw a fair district. There you go. Uh, Former Secretary of Labor, DNC Chairman Tom Perez. Secretary Perez, thanks so much for dropping by. Pleasure to be with you, Tom. It is always great talking with you, and I always learn something. I really appreciate it. Democrats.org, the website, IWillVote.com, Secretary? Yes. IWillVote.com. We'll promote it. Thank you so much. 
Dan in Orlando listening on iHeartRadio. Hey, Dan, what's up? Hey, good afternoon. I'm first-time caller, long-time listener to you. Now, first thank you, Dan. First want to thank you for educating me and everybody that listens to you. I just want to say to all your callers out there, we need some help down here in Florida. We're being outspent. We're outspent in the primaries, $90 million to $6 million. And we've already got so many lies, falsehoods, and misrepresentations, along with racism and everything coming into the uh, election down here in Florida, the probably biggest swing state in the country. So we just really need a lot of help. If y'all want to get on andrewkillum.com and just if y'all could phone call for us, or maybe if you could donate a little bit, it would go a long way to help the country and us. There you go. Um, Dan, I'm, I'm pleased to carry that message on your behalf. And thank you for the call and, and for, for making it. andrewkillum.com. Check it out. And thanks so much for being with us. We'll, uh, we'll be back, but uh, also it's really important. I mean, as we come into this election and as in many states, the window is closing to register to vote. It is so important to make sure that your voter registration is up to date. Democracy is not a spectator sport. It takes all of us. That includes you. So get out there and get active tag. You're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 